Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here, as always, with co-host Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan? Uh, Okay. A little tired this morning, but okay. It's been a long week. Uh, (laughs) Our topic today is going to be... uh, the state of democracy in Israel, in America, in the world. And we have a very special guest for that discussion. Alan, would you please introduce our guest? I would love to. It's my great honor and pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Shani Moore, who is a researcher at the Israel Democracy Institute, focusing on issues of representation and parliamentarianism. He holds a PhD from Oxford University and was a postdoctoral fellow at the Political Theory Project at Brown University. He is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Haifa University. He has taught at Columbia, Oxford, Brown, Science, Sciences Po Paris, and IDC Herzliya. He also served as a director for foreign policy in Israel's National Security Council, specializing in Israel-Europe and Israel-U.S. relations. So he is here to help us understand what is going on in the world today. <laughs> we, do, we do need some help. Thank you. Good morning. How are you? Yeah. Good morning. I'm fine. How are you? And would you prefer we call you Dr. Moore or Shani or? Shani is fine. Okay, well, I guess the first thing we have to address, sort of the big topic everyone's talking about as we record, I'm not sure when you're listening to this episode, but as we're recording now, it's Sunday morning after most uh, of the United States and international media have declared Joe Biden the victor in the 2020 presidential campaign. Do you have thoughts or first impressions about uh, where we stand in the moment? I know Israelis pay so much attention to American politics. What are your thoughts? It's an extraordinary moment. Um, It's an extraordinary election. Um, And one never knows when talking about the whole phenomenon of Trump and Trumpism over the last five years, whether to treat it as something that's uh, uh, exceptional um, or uh, just an extreme case of something that's there, Um, whether to treat either his election or his apparent defeat this week as within the arc of American political history or part of a, um, a global trend in, 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 in modern democracy or as some sort of aberration. And there's temptations to both sides. Ultimately, though, uh, at least on this morning, um, what we appear to be experiencing for the most part is a rather ordinary election. Um, an ordinary election with two candidates, one of whom has uh, uh, received probably in the end, more than 5 million more votes in the popular uh, count, and we'll have um, a pretty significant, uh, resounding, if not a landslide, uh, victory in the Electoral College. And, um, and the, the gears of, of the uh, American permanent constitutional bureaucracy are, are kicking in, into high motion. So in that sense, there's something entirely ordinary and normal. And yet, we instinctively don't feel that there's something normal about this, right? Um, so the worst case scenarios haven't happened yet. The things that, <clears throat> that kept me up at night over the last few months haven't happened yet. Um, but I will note, we haven't seen the ceremonial concession speech that we usually expect to see now. Um, we haven't seen any preparation from the outgoing administration for a smooth handover. At the same time, though, we don't see any sign yet of the kind of violence that people were worried about. And though there's a lot of bluster and talk, we don't even really see a real legal challenge. And now that's not just because there's no grounds for a legal challenge. I mean, when you make a legal challenge, even a groundless one, 
you usually have a, an army of well-paid lawyers and consultants working at it. You don't just have a bunch of tweets. We're just not seeing mm -hmm. anything. Um, um, we're seeing uh, the kind of psychological meltdown we'd expect from the personality type um, that has occupied the White House for four years. Um, and that's it. Well, we're not seeing so much of it. We're seeing we're being only shown small glimpses of he's been pretty quiet other than occasional tweets yeah, the, and a couple of addresses. The, the tweets are, shall we say, not presidential um, and not mm -hmm. even constitutional. Um, um, there's um, they're not the tweets of, of an adult who is surrounded by other responsible adults making sure mm -hmm. um, that something as delicate as a democratic transition uh, takes place in a proper way. Uh, but like I said, there has been no call to violence, no incitement of violence, um, no instant that has spiraled out of control. Um, and, um, and that wasn't a guarantee. I mean, had the result been closer, um, then who knows if that would have been. And again, we're only day, we're, we're, we're less than 24 hours since the calling. There's this quasi-constitutional status that American media have um, that's a bit difficult uh, for, for people outside of the United States to understand. Um, but since mm -hmm. the, 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 the major networks called the election, um, and there was a whole false drama around it, um, a false drama that ends up being particularly painful psychologically for the, for the side that lost, um, but that they themselves engineered. Um, there was no reason why the votes in those crucial states should have been counted in a way that was ultimately so painful for the losing side, except that they insisted that first the votes that were voted on same day be counted and only then mail-in votes. And they insisted that their supporters not use the postal system um, to vote. And what that created was what any sports fan can, can tell you is really, really... Um, uh, a painful way to lose, which is to feel that you're ahead and then watch it slowly uh, 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 drip away. But those weren't late votes. That wasn't anything slowly happening. That was right. entirely due to the engineered way of counting, which was only... Well, I think some people imagined it would play out differently. They imagined it would look like a win. They would declare the win and that would create momentum. But it kind of did the opposite. Yeah, there's... It gave this lingering sense of losing by drops. Sure. Um, I think there's something really frightening, though, in, in that first sentence. There's the, the fact that somebody imagined that they could manipulate the counting mm -hmm. process in a way to um, essentially reject the result is, is pretty scary. Now, mm -hmm. it, it didn't work this time. Um, I hope there's a lesson there. Um, I'm not sure. Well, you know, there's so much about American politics in, in just something that you just said, which was there's this weird moment in American politics where nothing official has changed, but the media has declared the victor. And that's when the winner says he won and the loser concedes. Right. America is such an image-based culture that, the, that, that I, I think part of where we are right now democratically, in, in, and certainly in the United States, but even globally, you're voting for image. The politics are image. Instead of the policy in the weeds, the boring stuff that that civics nerds really enjoy, uh, that the the focus should be on that rather than this sure and imagery thing. And so that strategy was based on that weird image politics. Sure, and voting uh, rather counting votes has always taken a long time. In 2016, you didn't have a final result from Michigan until 
more than a week and a half, I think, after the election took place. And that's not unusual. That happens in a lot of closely fought races. But next to voting, there's this reality show aspect of of network mm-hmm. television coverage. Exactly. And it was actually not surprising that a president who comes from the world of reality TV couldn't distinguish between those two things and said consistently in the days and weeks leading up to the election, oh, we have a right to know on the day of and people should know and, and the election should be called and, and attached a lot of importance to this uh, media calling rather than to the actual um, mm-hmm. count of the votes. I would point out, by the way, that the ritual of um, an election being called and then there being a concession speech and then there being a victory speech um, a ritual which did not take place this time in 2020 also didn't take take place in 2016 either. If you remember in 2016, the winner of the election rushed to give a victory speech bef- before the concession speech was given, which mm-hmm. was in, in itself a violation of an unwritten, you know, but just kind of the way things have been done traditionally. It's always um, that the result is known and the one who lost, uh, you know, uh, once they concede, make a phone call and they get on TV and say, I have just spoken with the candidate who won. Mm-hmm. I congratulated him on his victory, um, all these things, um, and uh, which, of course, Hillary Clinton did. But by the time she she did it, um, Trump had already given his victory speech. Um, and right. um, and if I remember correctly, didn't actually do what usually the victory speeches do, which is thank the loser for his or her service to the country and 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 wish them well and all these things. So. I'm not saying that 2016 was a great departure from tradition. It was a small departure. 2020 is a much greater one, of course. Um, But um, but at its heart is is the same person um, and and uh, and the same the same difficulty. It's much more. It's so it goes back to your it goes back to your original uh, you know uh, assertion of you know are we in exceptional times and are we going back to now with a, a more traditional president coming in. Uh, God willing, are we going to go back to those norms and maybe like maybe get into those weeds a little bit out of the out of the uh, reality show? I think we're going um, back to a more traditional you know, presidency, but we're not going back to more traditional politics, um, and we're not going back to more traditional sense of democracy. Um, that will take a long time, and and I think that the phenomenon that we saw in Donald Trump didn't begin with Donald Trump, and it certainly won't end with Donald Trump. Um, and since this is an Israeli program with an Israeli audience or an Israel-interested audience, um, it's very useful for us to um, constantly be asking these questions about our own democracy here and to make the comparisons. Um, this kind of thing, there, there. let's start with, with, with the ritual of, of the media call. That doesn't really exist in Israel mm-hmm. in the same way. In Israel, you have exit polls. The exit polls get updated with real-time results, but the real results are counted pretty quickly, and by the morning, you know what they are. Um, mm-hmm. and voting. And we've had a lot of practice doing that the yeah. last couple of years. And yeah. voting here is exceedingly <laughs> simple. Um, there are not complicated mm-hmm. ballot designs. There is no such thing as a down ballot. Um, you just put one, mm-hmm. uh, one slip of paper in an envelope. Um, in municipal elections, you sometimes have to put two. Uh, that's as complicated as it gets. Uh, two slips mm-hmm. in two different envelopes, yeah. I should say, which by the way, you had in, in general elections in Israel, uh, from 1996, uh, to, to 2000, well, 1996 and 1999 are the only two, actually. In 2001, you had a special election for Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. By 2003, we're back to a Knesset election. Um, and, um, because then they were experimenting with a separate vote exactly, for Prime Minister. Exactly. Mean? And um, the voting re- there's no voting registration because there's a national population registry. 
Um, there's no uh, uh, controversy about uh, photo IDs because every citizen has an ID which they don't pay for um, uh, mm -hmm. uh, with them. Um, there's no question of um, where you vote because everybody belongs to one precinct alone and um, public transportation is free on election day uh, to get there. There's no question of um, using uh, people's work hours for voting because election day is a paid holiday. Um, there's no question of, of trying to manipulate who is and who is not allowed to vote because every single citizen who is a resident um, has the right to vote, including prisoners, including people who are hospitalized. Um, uh, there's no question of absentee ballots because the people who are in prison or are in hospitals um, vote in a double envelope, um, which if you're listening, if you're curious, mm -hmm. I can explain how that works. Um, and, and soldiers. And, yeah, sure. Please do. And explain. soldiers. Soldiers also use it. Right. So the way that works is everybody who has an address in Israel belongs to a, a voting precinct where um, if they're alive, they're, they're registered. I worked in a voting precinct, by the way, and the rolls are updated. Uh, the, the list is updated so constantly that even on the morning of the election, we had two names we had to strike off because uh, they had uh, passed away in the time between the printout was made and when. Wow. Um, which is very easy to do when you have a national population registry at the Interior Ministry. Mm -hmm. Um now, if you're a soldier or a diplomat stationed abroad or a mariner, according to, to the old law, um, or hospitalized or in prison, and I'll, I'll speak for a second about, later about the, the prison issue because I think it's extremely interesting, um, then what happens is you get a separate uh, ballot box set up where you are, where your vote goes into two envelopes. The first envelope is the regular anonymized envelope that everybody votes with, and the second envelope puts your, is where you put your first envelope in, where you sign it. That gets sent then to your precinct where they can look at a list and verify that you haven't voted. Um, and once mm -hmm. they see that you haven't voted, the external envelope is removed and the anonymized one is put in the ballot box and now your, bo now your vote is mixed in with everybody else's. Um, that prevents anybody from voting twice and that allows everyone to vote. The fact that these things are put even in prisons is extraordinary. It's extraordinary um, because, and it's crucial because, it means that nobody can then play with who you're limiting the vote to. There was an attempt... Uh, uh, in Israel, even Igal Amir gets one vote. And I say him specifically... The, the assassin. The assassin, the assassin, the assassin of, of, of Yitzhak Rabin. And I say that because a few years ago, uh, there was an attempt to craft some kind of law that would have um, taken away his right to vote. Um, and that attempt was, was defeated. And the importance of that is, I think the moment you start making exceptions to universal adult suffrage you invite the kind of games that are now a legitimate part of American politics. Now, in every country, in every democracy mm -hmm. in the world, people try to get their opponents' voters, they, they wish that they would vote less. But there's always something a bit dirty about that, and there's a pious hypocrisy about that. In America, the pious mm -hmm. hypocrisy doesn't exist. An entirely legitimate part of running a campaign is ensuring people... you Suppressing Exactly. Your, yeah. That's an open part of, of, of how you... Uh, uh, do elections in the U.S., um, whereas in Israel, it's a hypocritical, embarrassing part of how you do elections in the U.S. That hypocrisy is really healthy, in, in my opinion. Um, and, and there's one other very interesting thing about the, the prison vote in, in Israel. By the way, uh, uh, um, so, so prisoners vote in municipal elections where the, the inmates are registered not at the prison, but in their last address before their sentence began, mm -hmm. which right. is a really complicated endeavor for, uh, for the Central mm -hmm. Election Commission to do. But there's something very, very important about that. In the United States, a prisoner is counted as a resident of the county where the prison is located, 
but is denied the right to vote. So for budget purposes mm-hmm. and census purposes, somebody who is disenfranchised, count the incentives in the system that are built in there in terms of how criminal justice is, take, is taken out and how you let people vote are incredibly perverse. Nothing of the sort exists mm. in this room. Wow. How so? Why are they perverse? What's the, what do those incentives lead to? The incentives lead to different policies in criminal justice, different policies in... In, in, in the U.S., you have rural counties uh, um, that are dependent on prisons for their local economy. And those rural counties, mm-hmm. because the prisoners are counted there as pop- part of the population, have an enormous representation then in their state assemblies and state senates. They also get an enormous amount of budgeting from this artificially inflated um, population. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, who don't get to vote. Who don't get to vote. It's artificially in- who don't get to vote. On the other hand, in Israel, we don't have regional representation. So the, the effect of that is somewhat minimized compared to the states oh, but where, you do have, where you vote from matters more. Yeah, but you do have enormous, out- Go ahead. have enormous outlays for municipal governments from state coffers. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, municipalities don't exist just on, on, on what's called in Hebrew, no, no, on council taxes. Um, an enormous amount of their budget comes right. from, from the state. And that is doled out based on population numbers. Um, mm-hmm. Sure. So, the, so what you're allocated will be based on your numbers, for sure. not for sure. But the prison, even though you're not represented yeah, differently, yeah. but the pr- prisoners in Israel don't count as residents of uh, uh, the play, of the, the location of the prison. They count as residents of their last mm-hmm. legal residence before they began their sentence, and they vote. The, 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 the Ministry of the Interior actually comes and brings ballot boxes to the prison and to a hospital, and you vote based on your last residence with the double envelope uh, method, that envelope is then sent to the correct precinct of your of your last legal residence, and your vote is counted there. I mean, these are small numbers. That and soldiers on army bases as well. Don't they vote on base exactly. with the double? Exactly. Yeah. So there's no room for this kind of mischief. It's not that we're better. It's that as soon as you have a norm that 100% of adults have a right to vote with zero exceptions, you can't play with that. If you got to a situation in Israel where you, for example had a law that prevented assassins of prime ministers from voting or had a law uh, prevented convicted terrorists who are citizens from voting or things like that. Things that sound reasonable when you first hear them. Um, you would open up a space for that kind of mischief. I mean, our, our problems are different here. We have problems with Jerusalem, right? The Arab um, residents of Jerusalem who are not Israeli citizens. I, I assume that must have a, We have plenty of we problems. We have plenty of problems. They all, <laughs> yeah. we have, they all yeah. relate to the issue of the state not having a final border. Right. Um, right. And, um, and of the official state wanting to have things multiple ways when it comes to where that, where even a provisional border lies. So, for example, in, in East Jerusalem, you have a situation where on the one hand, um, as far as Israeli law is concerned, it's not an occupied territory, it's a part of Israel. But on the other hand, when it's convenient, we, we do behave there as though it's just an occupied territory, as, if, as though it's part of the West Bank and not part of Israel. Um, the voting is, is one issue. Another issue is house demolitions. Uh, because, hold on, just to be for the listeners to make sure everyone understands, because Arab, most of the Arab residents of East Jerusalem are permanent residents. They have the rights of most of the rights of citizens, but they can't vote for Knesset. Right. Most Arabs are permanent residents. And the law regarding permanent residents is a really old law from way before 67. It was basically written um, <clears throat> about uh, uh, people who had spouses who were not citizens or all sorts of other entrances. It was not meant mm-hmm. to apply to hundreds of thousands of people. Um, mm-hmm. right. And that results from after East Jerusalem was annexed in 67, rather than 
<clears throat> denying citizenship to the residents or forcing citizenship on them. It was just sort of left in this amorphous um, status quo. Um, and interestingly, East Jerusalem residents, very few of them vote, even in municipal elections in Jerusalem where you, you could vote without becoming a citizen, very, very few vote. And at the same time, very, very few East Jerusalem residents vote in the elections for the Palestinian Authority, where they're also allowed to vote mm-hmm. um, in a very funny compromise where uh, the voting takes place in East Jerusalem at the post offices. And so the Palestinians regard those as voting precincts and Israel regards the po- it as a kind of a postal vote. Um, and mm-hmm. that allows that sort of everybody kind of turns a blind eye to the bits they don't like. But the uh, Palestinian Authority elections that took place in the late 1990s and early 2000s did involve uh, uh, ballots from East Jerusalem uh, at, the, at the post offices. Very few uh, uh, participated. Do you think Israelis pay too much attention to who the American president is, too little attention? You know, there's this, I know many of our students say, uh, come to, uh, Alan, you've experienced this also, right? Where students say, well, what does this mean for Israel? Is it going to be a radical change now from Obama to Trump or Trump to Biden? There are definitely changes. Do we, do you think, how, how important do you think those changes are? Alan and I often find ourselves in the position of saying there will definitely be differences, but We've, we're the world old isn't coming to, to an end. The world yeah, isn't the world's coming, not to, coming an to an end. The world isn't saved. There, there are differences of degree. They're not the American-Israeli policy we feel is pretty stable. Uh, I agree. I would separate the question into two. One is a question about democracy. Great. One is a question about uh, policy. Um, and let me address the democracy question first and then the, the policy question second. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I do think Israelis pay way too much attention um, to the uh, uh, mechanics of democracy in the United States um, in the sense that they're not interesting or relevant for us. But the reason they pay so much attention is because the second one, the policy question. So it's always going to be interesting to Israelis who wins an election in the United States for, for mm. a, a long list of obvious reasons. Interesting in a way that who wins the parliamentary election in Sweden or in, in Denmark or uh, who wins the presidential election in Taiwan um, is not going to be. Even though on the mm-hmm. democracy questions, those quest- those countries, countries that are about a mid-size, you know, two to 20 million parliamentary systems, right. um, unitary governments, non-federated states, uh, et, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, occasionally countries that have a lot in common with Israel, uh, a national majority and a national minority, bilingualism, large immigrant populations, national security concerns. I mean, there are a lot of countries, a lot of democratic countries that resemble mm. Israel much more and that we have a lot more to learn from. So for just political junkies, it should really matter to us what's happening in an election in Portugal or mm. in Italy or in Czech Republic or Hungary or Poland or other cases like that, to say nothing, like mm-hmm. I said, of Taiwan, South Korea. Um, uh, but but we're less interested in those because, frankly, the, the personalities and outcomes matter less to us. Um, so on the democratic issue, uh, there's not so much to learn uh, from the U.S., certainly not from the Electoral College, certainly not from the, the, the media ritual of calling an election, um, certainly not from the debates about voter suppression and, and whatnot. On the policy question, of course, it's fascinating. Yes, there's an enormous difference between Trump and Biden, including on issues which matter to us. But fundamentally, the Israeli-U.S. relationship can handle any of these changes. Um, and I don't think it's the case that um, I don't think it's the case, by the way, that um, that a Biden presidency is bad for Israel. Nor do I think it's ne- it's the case that Israel has neglected 
its relations with uh, the Democratic Party or with the left half of the American political system. It has been the case that Donald Trump was president of the United States for the last four years, um, that that's not something Israel or uh, the United Arab Emirates or Russia or whoever else you want to say chose. That's something that the American uh, voters in the American constitutional system chose. That presented a lot of challenges and a lot of opportunities for Israel. I'm reasonably satisfied that official Israel has navigated the Trump presidency in a way that I think was mostly good for Israel's interests, Um, that Mm -hmm. there were a few huge dangers on the way that we managed to avoid successfully and a few distinct opportunities that we managed to take advantage of on the way. Um, And I think, um, and, and, and that's what you do in diplomacy. The same way we don't get to pick who uh, the Palestinians or the Egyptians or anybody else has as their leader. We don't really get to pick who uh, the Americans have as their leader. Um, This is what there was there for four years. And and that was uh, something to work with for good or ill. What would you say is our biggest, what do you say is Israel's biggest uh, um, gain, you say, that we took advantage of in terms of opportunities? You said some great gains. Yeah, well, I think there were two symbolic gains that were very crucial and that should not have had to wait for a Trump presidency. And that was the... Golan recognition in the Jerusalem embassy, especially the Jerusalem embassy. Um, this was something that could have been done uh, 30 years ago. Um, and uh, and Con- Congress voted it. And Congress voted it. American in, law exactly, 30 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it should have been done at the time. Um, uh, there was an enormous uh, um, uh, ahistorical, pious hypocrisy regarding this issue. Um, and it could have been a good win for a Democratic president, particularly for a democratic president who wanted, let's say, to pressure Israel on more complicated issues, such as settlement construction mm-hmm. or uh, uh, anything to do with the negotiations with the Palestinians, or even on, on issues of weapons transfers, whatever, this would have been a great way to uh, get some symbolic credibility. Um, and, um, uh, and, and it's a shame that, um, it's a shame that, that, that previous presidents handed this um, handed this symbolic victory to, to Donald Trump, it should not have waited 30 years. The Golan one is a bit more complicated, uh, but also that was a recognition of reality. Um, it doesn't close off any future negotiations. Just because something is recognized as sovereign territory doesn't mean you don't negotiate over it in, in, in future peace negotiations. There's no shortage of precedents for that, including in the Israeli case, by the way, um, where after we declared the, the Golan sovereign in 1981, we still negotiated it over it in the 1990s and 2000s. Same for East Jerusalem. Right. Um, and so I think uh, I think those were two very important moves, um, and um, and I think that the Golan move allows for a certain kind of diplomatic progress on a few issues um, in the Israeli-Lebanese theater. Um, so those are two very important symbolic gains, I think as well. And that's why you think the symbolic gains are important because they lead to strategic diplomatic possibilities. Yes, absolutely. In other words, I've heard people say, "Well, that's symbolic," but I think in international diplomacy. Symbols matter quite a bit, sure. don't they? Of course. People are happy to yeah. lecture us uh, when it's in the other direction. Um, but for some reason, it stops mattering mm-hmm. when it's good for us. Um, uh, uh, yeah, the, I think those were very important. Um, I, I think that the um, uh, normalization agreements with the UAE and Bahrain are genuine diplomatic achievements. Um, in a certain sense, they are culminations of long historical processes. Um and uh, uh, but at the same time, um, uh, a lot of the credit needs to go to to this administration. Some of the moves that um, some of the smaller normalization baby steps uh, that um, 
that Gulf uh, states made with Israel were things that the Obama administration uh, uh, asked of its allies in the Arab world in 2009 and, and received negative answers for it. Right. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in, in 2009, uh, uh, Obama came um, with um, basically a list of demands for Israel, the Palestinians and for the pro-American Arab states. Um, and it's very funny because what everyone remembers is the fight that he had with Israel. Um, and mm-hmm. the irony is that actually it's true that Israel, like the other three, said no initially, but eventually he wore us down and Israel agreed to something that looked like the settlement freeze he was asking for. But the, the things he asked both of the Palestinian Authority and of uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia and through them of, of the other states that were aligned with the U.S. also received no. I mean, Obama asked for, for example, he didn't ask for, for direct flights um, from Israel to the Gulf Arab states. All he asked was for overflight rights, you know, so a really modest request. Flyover. Yeah, that flights mm-hmm. from Tel Aviv to, to, to India could, could fly over, over Saudi Arabia and... and, and and they refused, you know, I mean, and, and, and other really minor steps that, 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 that so they didn't go along. Um, that was a different period. That was before the Arab Spring. That was before the Syrian collapse. Those, were the, those are genuine diplomatic gains for Israel. Um, and, um, and, and this administration certainly deserves credit for it. Then from there, we move into more um, complex issues where um, it's far too early to tell if it's, uh, if, if it's a good or a bad thing. And obviously, you know what I'm referring to here, which is uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the the JCPOA, the the agreement with Iran. Right. Um, and it's uh, it's it's far too early to to say if that was uh, a good move, um, if that was really making the most of um, a challenging diplomatic situation, if that move was good for Israel, um, if there's a Plan B. Um, for what the United States wants to achieve now that it's outside of the agreement and if it's realistic to achieve it. And if what the United States wants to achieve and what realistically can be achieved outside the JCPOA is good for Israel. Um, That's Mm -hmm. not clear at all. It is clear that there were a lot of people in Israel, particularly in this government, who disliked the agreement to begin with. And so from an emotional uh, sense, we're very satisfied to see a new administration trash it. Right. We don't know yet if that was necessary. But it's not strategically. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then there are lots of and, other things uh, uh, to do with Trump's foreign policy in general that um, uh, that I think um, become uh, less ambiguous in terms of the costs to Israel. And they relate to just a weakening of the American position globally, which is bad news for Israel. Trump... Right continues a policy that has now run through three different administrations led by three different presidents with three radically different personalities of American retrenchment in the Middle East. Um, Since 2003, right up until now 2020, almost consistently, year on year, the United States is more and more disengaged from the Middle East. Um, And at this point, there is nothing in common in the personalities or the policy outlooks of George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, and yet that's the policy that all three of them pursued. That's something that in Israel we need to accustom ourselves to. Even with the even with the war in Iraq, I mean. Yeah, I started in two thousand three. I started in two thousand three. From the moment that the, that's a pretty big yeah. Yeah, from the moment that 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 war uh, uh, that the main the early phase of that war ends and it and and it turns into an occupation and a sectarian war and eventually a civil war. What you see is a gradual withdrawal of the United States. Um, in troop presence, in political commitments, 
in its alliance structure, and in its economic dependence from the Middle East, and also in its attention span from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Bush had, you, you, right. if you looked only at one of those administrations in isolation, and, and this is a problem when you deal with American commentators on foreign policy, is, is a huge amount of foreign policy commentary is just a translation for I hate slash love this president or that president. <laughs> now, if you look at yeah. just the Bush administration or just the Obama administration or just the Trump administration, you can tell a coherent story for why that happens. Based on that president, his personality, his administration's goals, etc. It's very hard then to extend whatever coherent story you're going to mm-hmm. tell to the other two men. Um, and, um, and yet, that has been completely consistent now for 17 years. The United States is constantly withdrawing from this region, loosening its commitments, and just doesn't want to be bothered anymore. Um, some of that is fracking, some of that is trauma from the failures of the Iraq War, uh, some of that is 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 sublimated. Pivot to Asia, yeah. <laughs> that they always say. Right. There's always this pivot, this magical, like pivot to infrastructure, pivot right. to Asia are these magical things yes. that never happen. Yeah, yeah, pivot is a way of, yeah. of saying, uh, uh, of making sure We know we should be happen. paying attention yeah. to something. Yeah. yeah. And, and President-elect uh, Biden, who clearly has a lot of experience in uh, foreign policy over that, that period and before. Yeah, I don't think, what do you think? I don't think we'll see a change in that direction. I don't think, I mean, there, there could be some surprising event, uh, uh, an Iranian, a uh, surprise Iranian attack on an American warship, I think will result in a, in a, in a, in a new, uh, in at least a temporary reaction or things like that. Or, or, but I don't think that the, the basic commitment um, of American policymakers um, to frack at home and let the Middle East do what it wants to do, um, I don't see that that will change. Um, in any dramatic way. Well, and I, I w- that has huge implications for Israel um, in terms of how it deals with the region directly, in terms of how it deals with mm-hmm. the, with um, other global superpowers, such as Russia and China um, and India. Um, it's a whole different way of thinking about the world. One thing that Israel has doesn't have a huge experience of diplomatically is this kind of... Um, classical European Machiavellian regional diplomacy and alliances. We've never been a part of any real alliance system in the region, um, and we've never had to think too much about the region. And in the globe, at most, we had to think of two superpowers in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Um, And since the 1980s, um, really since the mid-1970s, we've only been focused on one superpower, when Israel talks about the mm-hmm. international community, it's talking about Washington. Um, it hasn't had right. to be a part of the game. Now, there are exceptions. I mean, there's one catastrophic exception in 1980. There's, there's a, you know, it, it is not the case that Israel never intervened in Arab civil wars. Um, we did very on a very low level and successfully right. in 1970, but then we did catastrophically in 1982 in Lebanon. And there's nobody in Israel who's ever been in a rush since 1982 to enter into any Arab conflict. Um, uh, Certainly many people see us today as having a side in some of the regional Cold War, um, when, which I think is exaggerated. I don't think we really have a side. I think we have a temporary convergence of interests with one side in a few theaters, um, but that's it. We're not actually a party to, to any of these conflicts, not in Syria, not in Yemen, not in Libya, and not even to the Cold War in the, in, in the Gulf. Um, and I don't see any reason that that... Not officially. We're certainly operating in Syria. In a very limited way to protect our interests. 
um, in a way that's mm-hmm. coordinated oh, I see in a way that's coordinated yeah. with 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 a superpower with with radically different interests, but that we don't actually um, have any friction with them. Um, in other words, mm-hmm. we've learned to uh, Russia, exactly. meaning Russia. Yeah. Um, Right, I just want to make sure our that listeners, is, so this is, the listeners understand sure. what we're talking about because so we're we don't, we have to lay it out for them. This is a whole new way of conceiving of both the region and global politics in Israel that we just don't have the experience of. We don't have a long tradition of this I kind think, of, of this kind of complicated diplomacy. We, right, maybe if I just get, right, if sum up. In other words, when we act in our region, it's usually very, very focused on our own very, very self interests. As opposed to creating a like a bigger regional uh, coalition and so and interest. Exactly. I mean, if you said. look at the way European countries dealt with their regions over the last couple hundred years, when you're a, when you are learning to be a diplomat in Europe and you're studying your own country's history, it's a history of alliances, regional structures, changing, sh- shifting uh, b- right. balances of power. We've never had to think about these things here. We were not part of the regional game, right. and we had one superpower that we cared about. And suddenly we're in a place where, you know, just look at what's going on right now in, in two different theaters, Eastern Mediterranean and the Caucasus, where we are enmeshed in complicated alliance structures in both on different sides, which is, which is weird and dissonant. Um, but again, um, you know, if you were uh, um, a small Central European kingdom or something, or if you were an Italian city-state, that would be, would be a normal thing to, to have a, 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 a memory of. It's new for us. Um, in, in the uh, conflict in Armenia and Azerbaijan, we are basically, um, at least in terms of, 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 uh, of our weapon sales, uh, tied to uh, the, the, the side of Azerbaijan, which has, um, and, and the side that's, that's obliquely pro-Turkish and not pro-Russian, because mm-hmm. of our concerns there about Iran and, and, and a few other long-standing historical commitments. In the, the brewing conflict in the Eastern Mediterranean, where you have on the one side this uh, kind of uh, Greek-Cypriot, French-Egyptian consortium, which we are obviously aligned with, and on the other hand, you have a Turkish-Libyan-Qatari axis, and we're on the uh, completely different side. Um, so uh, this, is a, this is a kind of, of complex... Diplomacy right. that is, like the, in other words, the Turks. The Turks on one side were with the yeah. Turks, on the other side were yeah. not yeah. with the Turks, yeah. right? That's, so uh, this is a complex diplomacy that's totally normal for 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 countries, but is radically new for Israel, which has never been part of of regional alliances and never had to concern itself too much with with global superpowers. Uh, so so that's new. It's true that other go- governments have more experience, but isn't everybody going to have to get used to a, a post superpower world that that hasn't. That hasn't existed for quite a while. That's right. We're entering into a much more complicated yeah. world right now. Yeah. Um, um, and, and we feel it acutely in the Middle East because the dominant superpower here for the last several decades is, is withdrawing. Um, look, when, when Israel begins its, 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 uh, its diplomacy in the, in the first years of statehood, the... Middle East superpower architecture was a bit complicated. You had uh, states mm-hmm. that were aligned with Britain, like uh, Jordan, uh, states that were aligned with France, like uh, like Israel, and in a weird way also Lebanon, states that were aligned with Russia, uh, like Syria, and for a while Egypt, um, and and Iraq, and yeah, and then um, and and states that changed, like Iraq uh, um, from Britain to Soviet, and of course you had oh, the the or Iran. and Iran, and you had the biggest uh, probably 
shift. So you had two trends that, that happened over decades, two macro trends. One is that um, the United States replaces almost every other superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so this complicated checkerboard, this multicolored checkerboard of, of Middle East superpower commitments gradually just becomes one color. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 where, where the biggest, most dramatic shift is Egypt. Egypt moving into the U.S. Mm-hmm. column is, right. is, is really the, the end of the Cold War in the Middle East. Um, that's that's when mm-hmm. when one side has won, right. um, and um, and with dramatic implications for Israel, obviously, um, uh, not only our first peace agreement, but really the peace agreement that ends the, the conventional military threat to Israel definitively, um, and creates to our west a um, massive desert uh, buffer, which not a single IDF soldier is patrolling. Um, which is later supplemented in 1994 by a massive desert buffer on our east, which also doesn't have a single Israeli soldier patrolling. Um, and those those two developments, those two diplomatic achievements, completely alter um, Israel's security situation. Um, uh, so, so you have, uh, a, on the one hand, um, a U.S. dominance of the Middle East, that takes a couple decades to establish, that pushes out everybody else, except in Syria. And then you have the second trend, which begins only after the year 2000, which is a U.S. withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're sort of, at the, I mean, okay. 20 years isn't very long in, learn, in, in, in adjusting to this new changing no. situation, and that's what we're living through now. The, And, I, and again, I, I think the whole world is... is it's not. I, I think the just like you said, you have to look at it across administrations. You also have to look at it globally. Right. America's withdrawing from it, America. It's 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 facing inward as it begins to, and and if it doesn't unify, that will certainly continue. I think right. right. And institutional transformation. He was talking about in terms of regional. I mean, that's happening across the globe. This regional shifting. That's true. Um, yeah, multipolar world. Sure. But without without all the drama and violence of of, uh, of the post two thousand eleven Arab world, I think that that's been a particularly Inshallah. yeah. I think that's been a particularly uh, um, uh, a particularly brutal upheaval um, that miraculously Israel has managed to stay out of and not get dragged into. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not a given, um, and. Uh, um, I think I think that's been a, a, another uh, crucial achievement um, that was done in coordination with two U.S. administrations, both with Obama and with with Trump, and hopefully will continue under Biden. Now, to go back to your original question about this, so that that's one aspect, and um, in terms of other things that are happening in, in domestic <laughs> U.S. politics and into the way these the, to the 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 symbolic uh, totemic aspects of the Israel issue in domestic politics, um, there is plenty of. Yeah. Cause for concern. Um, uh, we have seen the way the issue of Israel, this sort of imagined Israel, has a huge symbolic value for aspects of a kind of uh, evangelical Christian right wing. I suspect that that hasn't had nearly as much impact on policy as people like to claim. In fact, I think it's had probably zero impact on policy. But people love to to talk about it as though it's very important. And we see a very uh, um, similar way the issue of Israel, this invented, imagined Israel that often has very little to do with the real place, has this enormous totemic 
importance um, for dividing, for distinguishing good from evil um, on parts of the American left. And we always, as Israelis, have the fear that we're going to see that kind of politics move from a fringe uh, to do what it did to the UK Labour Party and essentially affect a hostile takeover of a major center-left party. Right. Um, there are continuing worrying signs on the discourse about Israel um, in the American left, um, which need to be a cause for concern for everyone. The one thing I can say um, right now is that I, I don't think anything like what happened to the Labour Party could happen to the Democratic Party in the US. But if it were going to happen, or if anything even, you know, one-tenth as big were, were possible, it would happen to a Democratic Party in opposition. Um, if huh. Biden had lost mm -hmm. this week and the Democrats faced four more years of Trump... That would have empowered Trump, the yes, radical... Yes, that would have empowered that, and that would have empowered the kind of politics that wants to take... Now, look, the people on the left who, who genuinely care about Israel... Um, and who like Israel um, aren't going to fall for this. But what happens when you make this into an identity issue, not everybody actually cares or knows about the real Israel. And when it becomes a way of saying, I'm part of the community of the good, um, uh, as it did for the British left and as it has done for parts of the, the far left in the US, um, it's, it's hopeless or nearly hopeless to, to, to fight against. Um, the fact that uh, the Democrats won, and the added fact, separate from that, that the two Democrats who won, Biden and Harris, are both very pro-Israel voices, um, means that we got at least a four-year reprieve from this. It hasn't eliminated this problem, and it doesn't mean we need to um, let our guard down or stop worrying about it or stop thinking constructively about what we do. Um, uh, but it has at least bought us four years um, of delay uh, in a trend that is deeply worrying. The, hopefully. The, the hopefully, the, hopefully, hopefully. Well, the extreme left is now this? in a defensive position. They have to defend saying things like defund the police and, you know, get rid of Israel right. because that's now seen as a losing strategy. Right. So that puts them on right. the defense. Strategically, just, if you want to fight an extreme, you vote in moderates. You don't fight in the other extreme because that just empowers both right. extremes. Yes. But on the, you know, on the others, we talked, as you, you know, mentioned quite uh, you know, clearly about the uh, American media politics, that it has mm -hmm. this, uh, you know, media focus and that it does, it does affect, it certainly affects us emotionally. Um, and, uh, and, and those and, symbolic know, things politics, do matter. Those symbolic yeah, things do matter. And, and media is, you know, the way, the way of American politics for sure. Yeah. Politics. So, um, well, Shani, I think we took you out of your professional yeah. expertise, and yet you were incredibly helpful and enlightening and made a lot more sense out of things for me. But that just means we're going to have to have you back so you can Gladly. explain to us more about your day job. Fantastic. Would love to. <laughs> that would be great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Alan. Thank, Our pleasure, thank you, Mike, really. and thank you, Shani. Great. Yeah, really. Thank you so much. We don't have to log off, but that's the end of the episode. Bye-bye. Thank you.